When it comes to air quality, the bad news is that wildfires and air pollution have really degraded the quality of our air. But the good news is that we're all realizing that the quality of our air, and particularly the quality of our indoor air, is really darn important. I'm so excited to tell you about Puro Air because in 30 minutes, this device will remove allergens, dust, smoke, and gases from your room. It uses a stronger type of filter called a HEPA-14, and it filters pollutants at a microscopic level. I keep my Puro Air running upstairs where the bedrooms are all night. I love that it's quiet. Cleaner air just hits different, doesn't it? Check out everything Puro Air has to offer at getpuroair.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. One more time for the people in the back, getpuroair.com. Why, hello there and welcome back. I am your host, Stephanie Safarian, and you are listening to episode 142 of the Sustainable Minimalist Podcast. On today's show, we are discussing biodiversity what it is, and why we should all be quite concerned that it is declining so rapidly. Today, I have an interview with Christiane Close. Ms. Close is the global practice leader at the World Wildlife Fund. And if you have never heard of WWF before, World Wildlife Fund, know that it is one of the world's largest independent conservation organizations with active networks in over 100 countries. The mission of the fund is to stop the degradation of the planet and its natural environment. Today's interview has lots of information. If you missed some of it, you can head on over to mamaminimalist.com forward slash 142 for the show notes. Otherwise, let's get right into it. Enjoy the interview. Miss Close, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about the World Wildlife Fund new report. I would love to really dive into the report and what it has to say about biodiversity loss. But before we even get into the nitty gritty today, please introduce yourself and tell us what role do you hold at the WWF? Sure. Hello. I'm Christiane Close. I lead the global markets practice at WWF International which mainly means that I aim to connect the business and the markets uh, work and interventions towards uh, positive impacts in conservation. Really um, link the business and the companies and and supply chains and activities uh, related to our consumption so that it has less impact um, in nature. Mm Well, the Living Planet Report, which was just released by the World Wildlife Fund last week, is incredibly comprehensive, (laughs) and saying comprehensive almost might even be an understatement, but it really highlights the unprecedented biodiversity loss that the planet is experiencing right now, and that's not just the animals. I was shocked as I was reading to learn that it also encompasses plants and soil diversity, Before we even get into the numbers and to the alarming rates (laughs) that is happening right now, I'm willing to bet that some listeners may not even understand, first of all, what biodiversity is, but also why it's important. So that's my first question. How would you define biodiversity and 
why why is it important to human life and the life of species on this planet? Yes, biodiversity seems to be a complex word, right? But I think we tend this now to simplify that by mainly calling it nature. And why nature? Because it's really everything that's linked to the ecological life support in our planet. So we say that biodiversity provides um, key ecosystem services, which are the supply of our oxygen, clean air and water, pollination of plants, which is hugely important, pest controls, um, and, and other services that are more uh, subjective, like even recreational, or, you know, there are some links showing that, you know, being in nature have mental health positive effects, um, hiking, sports, camping, fishing. There are a lot of things, you know, that nature provides. And so biodiversity goes from the mammals to the insects, to the plants, to the diversity in the soil richness. Um, so it's really the broad way. So that's why we, we tended to simplify it and call it nature, everything that's in nature. And it's super key to us. If you look around you right now, the air you're breathing, the water you're drinking, the clothes you're wearing, the food you have, some medications, um, even the beauty products, shampoos, many of those either are 100% from nature or a big percentage comes from nature. So it is really a, a strong life support for our well-being. Hmm. The report defined biodiversity in part by calling it the web of life. And I feel as though many people don't understand that when we lose a species or a species goes extinct, it affects all the other living things on the planet. Am I getting that right? Yeah, I, I you know, we have a, a Netflix series called Our Planet. And I think there I saw the best example. They were showing about shark populations decrease. And when you think, okay, what's the big problem of having less sharks in the world, right? <laughs> we normally see it as a, as a you know, a, a threat. But sharks have a strong effect of keeping the the balance in coral reefs because it feeds from fish that at the same time feed from other fish, you know, and there's a whole connection. And if those smaller fish, um, uh, you know, are not um, eaten by any other species, they will then start eating coral at a higher rate. And therefore corals will get in a way overeaten. And, you know, corals, even though we don't think about it, has a huge effect also in our oxygen supply of the world with oceans. And so there's a whole connection. So you would think, oh, you know, it's not a big deal that sharks are decreasing. But then when you see the whole chain, even the food chain, you know, something we learn at school, it, it has a huge effect. So that's why everything needs to be sort of in a balance, right? So you don't have species that disappear and then others grow so strong that it then destroys the ecosystem that they're living in. So that I think it's really important for us to understand. So yes, the web of life, definitely. We know that industrialization harms nature, harms the planet. And so then, of course, does global economic growth. But I'm wondering if you could really spell it out for us. What exactly are we as humans doing to 
contribute to this rapid degradation of biodiversity? Well, I think the key point has been in the past decades, land use change and the industrialization and mechanization of food production. So those are the big things. And that comes with economic growth because cities grow and therefore they start using land that before was was land that was not um, filled with cement. It was more, it was greener, right? And then of course the consumption. So as, as classes income increase and you be, there's a bigger middle class, they start eating more protein. And protein, you know, beef and poultry, they all depend on a high consumption of grains and water, and therefore they demand more uh, inputs, and therefore you need to produce more soybean or maize. And so it's all interconnected. And so there is a, um, for anybody that wants to, to see more about this, there's a scientific um, curve called the Kutnes curve. And there it, it has studied how economic growth is directly affecting environmental degradation. So as an economy develops, the, their ecological uh, wealth decreases. So it literally has a direct effect. The thing is that it seemed that after a while, when you become a very wealth nation, you will realize this and then you will reinvest in building back your ecosystems, but that is not happening. So the curve used to have this sort of U-shape, but it, we're seeing that it doesn't have, it's really a huge decline. And it's basically linked to the way we overconsume and we really uh, take more than we could allow for the planet to uh, replenish itself. Um, but I think, you know, if we need to signal one key element, it is, um, the way we produce and consume food. It's really the main element that affects the degradation and, and loss of biodiversity and land use change. Hmm. I know you mentioned before we hit the record button that you are not a scientist, but I'm wondering if I can ask you sort of a scientific question just for your input. I go back and forth. <laughs> and I don't know whether the answer is one or the other or a combination of both, but is the problem humans overconsumption or is the problem too many humans or both happening at once or neither? Yeah, no, and, and um, yeah, I'm not, not a scientist, but I do read and breathe this uh, material on, on a daily basis. So uh, I feel quite comfortable to answer. I think, you know, at the beginning we thought, oh, the increasing population, right? So that's the problem. There are much more, I mean, we've doubled our population in the last 50 years. So clearly that's an issue. But I think that in, you know, the past decades, we've seen that actually, you know, with the technology that we have available, we could be producing, and we are currently producing enough food to feed everybody. There are two key problems. You know, one third of the food produced is either lost or wasted. It means that it rottens on the field or on the way to some sort of um, place where it can be uh, stored or processed, 
or it's either wasted because we overbuy or because you know we order too much in a restaurant so there's things about our habits and you know so working around reducing food loss and waste is a huge element imagine one third that's a huge amount of food that's you know never reaches um you know, to feed a human. And considering that we have places that there's huge issues around malnutrition and issues about, um, you know, not enough availability of food. So that's an element. And the other element is um, there are, um, you know, millions of hectares of degraded land in the world, but it's relatively more expensive and requires more technology and more capacity and skills to recover that land into becoming a producing land. But it's much cheaper and simpler to actually go and, you know, cut some trees and open new land to harvest or to, you know, to put food, um, uh, agricultural production. So if we're really committed to recovering degraded lands rather than opening new um, lands for food production, which means, you know, converting habitats um, for agriculture or livestock purpose, there is already enough land available that we don't need to cut any other tree or, you know, put at risk any other species for that. So it's no, we cannot use anymore though, oh, it's because there's too much people. It's really because we're not using smartly and more efficient the resources that we already have. Hmm. Thank you for that. That was quite enlightening. So I appreciate the depth you went into with that response. Now, before we get into the numbers, the Global Living Planet Index, I just want to touch on one more quick thing that I'm willing to bet some listeners listening right now aren't aware of. And that is that biodiversity loss is intertwined with climate change. Can you spell that out for us, please? There is a um... In a way, it is a consequence, climate change, because it's a consequence and it is a cause as well. And I think one of the best examples we can give, which is quite current, is the longer and more severe drought seasons that we're seeing around the world. Now in California, last year we had huge fires in Australia, and those were caused or are being caused by climate change. At the same time, all that forest that is burning is expelling tons of CO2 into the air, which at the same time makes it climate change worse. <laughs> and when the fires are gone, that forest, that green lung that was going to be able to convert CO2 into oxygen is also gone. So you have less capability of reducing climate change. So you see, it's so like chicken and egg, right? You know, climate change creates conditions that damages nature and the damage in nature then increases um, temperatures in the atmosphere and CO2 in the atmosphere, and that will then increase climate change. So it's totally interlinked. And like that example, there are others else, but I think that's like super clear <laughs> because we can really see it happening, right? Right. It makes me think about how, you know, when you're walking along and you lose your footing, you're off balance, you topple. And it seems like this planet and all the intricate little 
webs of life that we all depend on are off balance and we're at a we're at a toppling point. Would you would you agree with that? Totally. I think um they say, you know, we're we're the last the first decade that can see and experience the huge effects of climate change and nature loss and probably the last decade that can do something really meaningful to change the future related to this. So it's really a tipping point. You know, there's there's something that we use when you refer to the forest, right? The Amazon forest, we're saying, I, I live in Brazil, so it's, it's quite um, frequent that I use this. You know, it says that the Amazon forest is in the tipping point because if it passes, um, 70% um, of destruction, right? Sorry, it's 30%. If more, if it has less than 70% remaining, the forest won't be able to regenerate itself. So that's called the tipping point because after that, it would just continue to, to degrade and degrade and degrade. It won't be able, you know, forests and this living spaces have the ability you know, through the animals, through its own seeds, through winds, through pollination, it sort of regrows itself. But when you pass that tipping point, and that's why we're so um, screaming our lungs out saying, this is the moment, because if we pass that tipping point, it will be impossible for, for nature to create itself. It will require much more investments, technology, and we don't even know if it's going to be possible to keep having such um, a huge, immense um, uh, forest to keep living by itself. So it's really exactly that. That's why, you know, we're currently in a moment that, and we're also living um, a, a situation in the world through this pandemic that is also waking us up to many realities. So it's really a, a huge tipping point. So let's get into it then. Let's talk about the numbers. <laughs> the report has dozens, I would say, dozens of very colorful graphs, <laughs> which all say essentially the same thing. So tell us how quickly is biodiversity across species declining? And well, I guess we'll stop there because that's a loaded question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so this is the Living Planet Index. And, you know, when I joined WWF almost four years ago, I they had just launched. It's a publication that launches every two, three years. So it was in 2018, um, and I devoured it. And because it's so interesting to read, right? Because it tracks the abundance of almost 21,000 populations of mammals, birds, fish, reptiles around the world. And really, it's the indicator of, you know, the how the building blocks of our wildlife population is is performing. Let's say if you talk about it as an index, right? So, it, since the 1970s, this has been tracked and seen year after year how it's going. And so, it it includes this year's um, report includes more 400 species and more. 4,870 new populations. And that's important to differentiate. One is the species and then it's the population, which is the group of um, the amount of species, right? And so the decline is quite terrible. We've seen since the 1970s, it has declined 68%. And, you know, that's quite shocking. 
because um, what's remaining, it's really how we should preserve is so important because there's so little left. Although we look around and think, oh, there's just a lot of nature left. But no, the numbers are showing that the decline is really very, very dramatic. Yeah, it almost seems to me as though people assume, you know, when a species goes extinct, the the panda was endangered, the Bengal tiger, right? What they see is that conservation efforts are rallied to save the panda or save the tiger or save whatever it is. And I think we all just assume that the onus of responsibility is on the conservationists who are going to just magically make this population of whatever it is uh, thrive again. But it's not just the big, pretty, fluffy (laughs) animals that we're talking about here. We're talking about the insects who keep our soil um, fruitful. We're talking about the pollinators. Yeah, I just want to say that as so we can think less about the <laughs> the save the pandas and more about the the save the humans at the end of the day. I want to ask you about the connection between biodiversity loss and food insecurity. So we will get to that question after a quick word from this week's sponsor. Blasoma does things differently than most of the cosmetics industry, and that's because their estheticians create holistic and botanical skincare made from vitamins, omega fatty acids, herbs, and essential oils, not those hard-to-pronounce ingredients, petrochemicals, or synthetics. Blasoma is the real deal when it comes to ethical business practices, too. Zero ingredients, lack safety data, are tested on animals, or are harmful to skin or body. Their products come in glass bottles too, and their production studio is 80% solar powered. I have been using the Sustain line for two months now, and I am a huge fan of their five-star rated mild rice facial cleanser. There are no microbeads to be found in this cleanser, my friends. Instead, it is rice that gently exfoliates and cleanses. Head on over to blissoma.com, that's B-L-I-S-S-O-M-A.com, and enter code MINIMAL at checkout for 20% off Sustain Ecosystem products. I would love to talk to you about biodiversity loss and food security for humans, because as biodiversity continues to decline, it puts humans (laughs) in a really difficult place in terms of survival. So talk to me about that connection between biodiversity loss and food security for humans. Yeah, no, so, you know, um, food security is really assuring that every human being has the nutritious and healthy food that it needs to, you know, have good health. And you can't do that on diets that are not varied, that are not preserved in a way, right? And that are not adapted to different realities. And so I live this a lot. You know, I worked in Africa for many years and you could see, you know, the the rural communities, the smallholder farmers, you know, droughts and forests, for example, not being available 
so that you could have water sources. You know, there's a huge link between forest protection and your ability to have flowing rivers because the water, you know, the rains coming in regions where you have those forests, there's a whole connection between water, forest and, and, and Greenland. So if you start cutting trees and there's no more forest, there's gonna be much less water. And so then you look at these communities in you know, rural Africa, uh, impoverished communities, and they live from their soil. And it's so terrible to see the food security of those places being so endangered because they're not even able to harvest the crops that they usually do. And even having the seeds available, the biodiversity in seeds as well of local crops that they could harvest is also very critical. And so, you know, the ability that people, not in the middle of cities, but in rural areas, in distant areas, can have access to food is also dependent on the protection of nature and biodiversity, on, you know, availability of, of rich soils. Soils are something that degrade so fast. And again, if you lose that biodiversity of the soils, the soils won't, won't be any fertile anymore. So there's so many different steps of you being able to have food available for the people that need it the most. And of course, the element of diets, right? And But that's a complete different conversation and uh, happy to dig into that. But I don't know if, if that answers your question. It does. Thank you. Just going back really quick to the rate of loss, I'm wondering if the entire globe, continents across the board are seeing loss at similar rates or are some continents, some countries, some areas experiencing a more rapid rate than others? And if so, why? Well, this year we had a, a, a shocking discovery, right? Because the numbers showed that in Latin America and the Caribbean, there has been the most dramatic decline at 94% compared to 1970. So 68% is the average of the world, but 94% in Latin America. And so we started looking why is this happening, right? And so there are many reasons. One has been because, you know, I mentioned at the beginning that we've added a couple of more uh, species into the report, and a lot of them were amphibious. And so um, considering the loss of forest areas and the huge dramatic impact of rivers, those species have really declined significantly. But also, you know, Latin America, if you go back in these decades where you read the most effect about fires and deforestation and where the growth in agricultural development has come from, it is, you know, mainly Latin America where the soy production of the world comes from, beef production. And so there has been tremendous loss of forest area. And so, uh, you know, coming and living from, the, from, from this region, uh, I'm not surprised that it's much more significant because this is what we see. And, you know, then there are many things, you know, in, in favor of economic development, as we started in the conversation, favoring more economic development than protection of nature, and then just really opening land for agriculture, but not efficient agriculture or smart agriculture, just very low productivity agriculture, which doesn't benefit. It can benefit you for the very short term, a couple of years, but then in the long term, you know, 
it's lost. <laughs> and so it's, it's really uh, terrible to see that. Hmm. I must be completely honest when I say that as I read the report and as I'm talking to you right now, my eco-anxiety is <laughs> through the through the roof. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah. Well, I think part of the reason for this anxiety, this eco-anxiety that I'm experiencing and I'm sure listeners are experiencing right this moment is that People, scientists, conservationists, people have been shouting from the rooftops for decades now about climate change, about biodiversity loss, about the state of the planet. And it doesn't seem as though anybody with the power to make significant change is listening. So I'm wondering, is now going to be the time when things are different, in your opinion? Well, I think, why is this so difficult? There's a term that we use a lot, and it's very easy to say, but you don't really know how to achieve it, which is system level change. It is not just one government or one company or an industry or a group of consumers. It is really the whole system. It needs to be policy. It needs to be business and industry. It needs to be consumers. A lot of leverages. I think... You know, I tend to be an optimist, and I guess that's why I work in this field, because my anxiety is not that high. But, uh, you know, I think this year has taken the blinds off a lot of people, and we're all questioning the purpose of what we do, the purpose of what we consume, how we consume, how we live. And I think it's, there's a huge opportunity. If not now, when? right? If not under a global pandemic that has really shaken completely our lifestyle and our mental models, when will we make the changes that we need? And, you know, also being able to share. And another thing that this year was important is that people started looking more into science. You know, before scientists were disregarded and that, oh, that's exaggeration. And, you know, opinions were much more important. And I think the issue that the pandemic brought us is to know we, you know, the broader community and, and, and society caring about science. So I think there's more uh, open ears to listen to what we're saying. And then I think there is also, you know, uh, COVID is a zoonotic disease. Uh, it's it, it, direct origin is still, you know, under analysis, but it, it is pointed very much that it has linked off a disease that came from an animal into humans. And that's also because our natural defense mechanisms that will be forests and trees and natures are shrinking. And so we're much closer to animals and we're eating wildlife. And, you know, um, human consumed wildlife are much closer to, you know, uh, wildlife that is not normally humanly consumed. And so we're trying to see how we understand that the health of people and diseases that are zoonotic diseases can be really linked to the destruction of nature. And I think now people are demanding more. Companies realize that consumers care more and so that they need to show what they're doing. And governments also realize the huge costs that they have to pay with the economic downturn if they do not do things to prevent nature laws and climate change. 
So I think that the the situation is there for us to awaken a little bit uh, uh, stakeholders that haven't been wanting to take um, measures before. So I would think I will continue to be an optimist. But yes, we have a lot to do. Well, that is the perfect transition into my final question for you. I like to keep this show upbeat and optimistic and actionable. That's huge for me. So do you have any ideas as to what me and my listeners, what can we do right now to not obviously stop, but perhaps slow biodiversity loss? Well, you know, I can I can talk about, you know, important things that we can do in our, in our society, but I also like to share my experience as a, as a mother, as a, <laughs> a woman, and, and also trying to do things in my own home, right? So, of course, you know, we can engage with our governments, see what they are legislating, require, you know, demand and sign petitions so that they can, so that our voice can be heard. And it does matter. You know, there are many petitions online around deforestation, a new deal for nature and people. You can call industries and companies so you can change with your with your consumption, what products you eat, asking questions about the origins, you know, is there deforestation in this in this product? Um, so that's thing. And then on your own, I think the biggest thing we can do is on our diets and our consumption. So, you know, I come, I'm original from Brazil. Uh, my husband is Argentinian. So, you know, if I came home, I said, okay, we're not eating meat anymore. That would be a shock, <laughs> but, I can say, okay, we're eating meat once a week, right? And then talking to my children, you know, I, I say that my seven-year-old is a vegetarian in the making because he started asking, so mom, did we have to kill animals for this? Why do we do that, right? So really understanding that you don't need to eat meat every day. It's not, you know, healthy. So really looking what you're buying, buying local, buying seasonable. Um, trying to see what products you are consuming, what they have inside, what are the brands doing for that. So I think it's really about your diet choices that can be more healthy and that can have a lower footprint. Uh, I also, you know, I worked a lot on, related to plastic pollution. So really cutting down the single-use plastics in your own house, um, researching about it, reading about it, and trying to find solutions. And I know it seems that it's, oh, this is just a feel-good change. No, it is really meaningful. You know, consumer behavior change is the ultimate change that we need. Uh, and I think, you know, at least in in this year, we've seen a huge increase in, in consumption of organic food. And not because people were wealthier, just because people clicked and said, you know, I think I want to be healthier in general. So I'm going to try to eat more organic food. You know, I, I don't see organic is not for everybody and maybe it's not available. So this is not for, for one size fits all solution. But I really think, you know, trying to look a little bit more what you can shift in your diets, prevent food waste. Okay, it may take that you need to go to the supermarket twice in a week, but not make a huge purchase and then throw a third of it, you know? So I think the, that kind of changes are really meaningful. You know, reuse, I, I, I'm like a specialist in recooking uh, food, you know, and mixing and creating new dishes out of food that I've already made. And just, you know, becoming smarter about that. that those are things that you can do at home. And I think helping educate others, talking about this, especially, you know, the younger generations. I always give the example, 
you know, probably my parents to throw garbage on the street was quite usual or smoking in a closed place. Right now, if you see anybody throwing garbage on the street, it's like socially unacceptable. The same thing for smoking. So if we start making some behaviors socially unacceptable in the new generations, I think that's the way that we're going to create really meaningful changes. So start having those conversations, creating that awareness um, in your own, you know, dinner table conversations are so important. Hmm. I love all of those suggestions and I almost want to just add one of my own, which is that, you know, when somebody comes at you with curiosity about, well, why are you riding your bike to work instead of driving? Or why are you, why are you whatever, some green activity, insert a green activity. When somebody comes to you with genuine curiosity, be willing to sit down and have that conversation because that is a moment when a door can be opened to changing somebody else's habits. And I think, yeah, yeah, I just think that that's so important. Yeah. You know, I did that in my, in my kids' school. I was seeing some, some things that I wasn't so much in agreement. And then I, had, I asked for a meeting with the, with the school director and coordinator. And I said, listen, there's so many changes you can do with just minor things that it could even cost you less money to do it. And they loved it. And so we started, you know, with the school, bringing new um, visions into waste, into food waste, into plastics. And, you know, then it's just, like you say, opening a door for a conversation that can really be meaningful. Miss Close, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, divulging the, the numbers behind the Living Planet Report. Thank you so much for your work in this realm and i wish you the best of luck in the future thank you so much and thank you for the work you're doing and really wanting to take this information to your audience that's really very meaningful to us as well so thank you i so hope you enjoyed that interview with christiane close over at world wildlife fund Everything we talked about can be found in the show notes at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 142. That's M-A-M-A minimalist.com forward slash 142. Really quick before we go, I have an eco tip from Erin. Erin listened to a previous episode, episode 140, all about ethical alternatives to Amazon. And she wanted me to mention on the show that Amazon is known (laughs) for undercutting authors, publishers, and sellers when it comes to book sales. So if at all possible you need a new book, head to your local indie bookstore. They will get you the book you want even if they don't currently have it on their shelf. And she also wanted me to mention biblio.com. That's B-I-B-L-I-O.com if you're looking for a used or an out-of-print book. So don't go to Amazon, go to first your local bookstore and second biblio.com for those out of print books. Thank you so much, Erin. I hope you all have a wonderful week. I will see you next week. Stay home, stay healthy and take care.